happy Thanksgiving. I hope you are getting ready to be able to have maybe some family or some friends around to be able to have a good meal. And uh, I am excited about this week as well. I get to go in, uh, up to Dumas and going to see my family for a couple days, and I'm excited about that. So pray as I travel. I'll be praying for you as you travel, or maybe you have relatives coming in. Um, it's, it's a great time to be able to celebrate and say thank you. Now, last week I gave you an assignment. The assignment was very simple. To take a little bit of time to count your blessings. To stop and say thank you to write it down, or to maybe just take a few moments to work through the idea of counting your blessings to see really, truly what God has done in your life. And I hope you did that. Maybe you forgot and go, oh yeah, I meant to do that. So I'm just giving you another reminder. Take just a moment. This is Thanksgiving week, and as we go into Thanksgiving week, take just a few moments to to celebrate and to remember what God has done for you. Now, our series is called The Art of Thanksgiving. We're walking through this idea of how should we truly be thankful? What does it look like? Because for most of us, we know we're supposed to be doing it. And remember last week, we were, we were taught by the Apostle Paul that the will of God for our lives was to do what? To be thankful. To pray always, to rejoice constantly, and to give thanks in everything. So we know we're supposed to do it, but the problem sometimes is in the living it out. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. Again, this is a passage that more than likely you've heard before. Maybe you have even quoted it, you've had it memorized, and it talks about this idea of rejoicing. And rejoicing and thanksgiving are both, they go hand in hand. It's hard to rejoice without giving thanks. It's hard to give thanks without really truly rejoicing. It goes hand in hand. And so last week when we talked about rejoicing, I felt like we needed to spend a little bit more time on this concept of rejoicing. And then next week we'll dive into the idea of giving thanks a little bit more. So Philippians chapter 4, you have your Bibles. I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. Here's what the Bible says. Go all the way down to verse 4. So Philippians 4, verse 4. And here's what the Bible says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for your blessings. We celebrate and say thank you for how that you truly sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross to pay for our sins. And now that he has, has died on the cross, that God, we don't just celebrate a, a dead Savior, but we celebrate a Savior who is alive and risen. We celebrate the fact that Jesus is in heaven, and he is truly the King of kings. And this morning, as we look into your word, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have freedom in this place. Teach us. Give us the ears to hear so that, Father, we truly hear from you and we walk out of here a different people because we've heard from you. In Jesus' precious name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
All right, so we have to start off. If you open up your bulletins, I do have your notes in, in, uh, in there for you so you can follow along. They have devotionals for the week, and then also they have um, small group questions. You can use those in your quiet time during the week. You can do, use that with your, um, your home groups, your Sunday school classes, things like that. It helps, helps kind of give you some additional questions to dive into today's lesson. Paul starts off and he says, rejoice. Now, we've heard this idea before, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, we talked about last week, if this is a command, and remember, it was a command, this is the will of God for our lives, is that we rejoice, that we pray without ceasing, and that we give thanks in all circumstances. And now today, we see it repeated again, Paul is saying, rejoice always. Isn't that a strange statement? Because you and I have lived life long enough that we understand that there's not, every day is not full of rejoicing. There's not great events every day that's going to be happening to make us happy. There's going to be more days in our life, according to the psalmist, that fewer of the days are actually happy. He says that you've created the man, O Lord, and you actually full of grievous days are his life. We've lived that life. We've lived life where we really understand that it is hard and that life is not just easy. And yet Paul is telling us to rejoice always. Rejoice again, I say rejoice. Do you realize that in the New Testament, we are told 70 times to rejoice? Why do we need to be told 70 times? Now, here's, here's what happens with my kids. In, in training my kids and teaching my kids, we have a phrase that we use quite often, first time. What do I mean by first time? When, when I say something to the kids and they start, start not actually doing what I've asked them to do, then I say first time, and they understand first time obedience. You don't get multiple chances. You don't get second and third and fourth times. Dad doesn't have to repeat himself because dad is supposed to say something one time, and we are to immediately obey. All right, so first time obedience. We use that phrase. Now, let me be real clear. Does it always work? Okay, this is an ideal situation, so I'm just helping you understand it. I know it's ideal. I'm not saying they're perfect, but we, we work through this over and over again. First time obedience. So first time. And as we walk through it, there are many times that I have to repeat it. And when I do repeat it, then there's usually negative consequences, right? Now, why does God have to repeat it? Don't don't you think that if God says it, that should be good enough for us? We even have songs like that, right? God said it, and yet quite often our human experience causes us to say, I don't know if I really believe it. I don't know if I can really do it. Or we just simply forget. You and I know we are to rejoice always. We sing the song, we quote the scripture, and yet we need the reminder at least 70 times, don't we? At least 70 times. So that way, every so often, every few chapters, you're going to hear a command, rejoice. Again, just in case you didn't catch it, rejoice. Now here's your first point. In order to rejoice, we need to understand and we have to be careful and be able to rejoice because God is more valuable than success or sorrow. Now, this is the Apostle Paul talking. Let me show you what he does in chapter 3. So, in chapter 4, we see Paul saying, rejoice, rejoice always in the Lord. Why does he put in the Lord? Because if you're rejoicing in any other thing, it's going to fail you. You rejoice in a person eventually they will fail you. 
If my rejoicing is dependent on how well my wife, how much I like my wife, do you know some days there's going to be chances that I probably won't like her very much? And there's going to be chances she won't like me. Now, I'm not being mean and I'm not being rude. There'll be times in which we're going to get frustrated with each other, right? So if my rejoicing is dependent on a human, humans will fail us. If my rejoicing is based on government, <laughs> just chalk that one up. If my rejoicing is based on my work, then it's going to fail. Are you following this? So Paul says, God is more valuable. Rejoice in the Lord because God is more valuable than anything that you can have, whether it's success or whether it's sorrow. Here's how I base it off of. Go to chapter 3, Philippians. Just turn a page over or maybe just look across a page. Philippians chapter 3. Paul begins to walk through who he is and what he has done in his life. And he begins to talk about all the successes. So chapter 3 here in Philippians. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. I, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. Here's my success. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee of the highest order. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, what's he say? Blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he makes a profound statement. For his sake I have suffered the loss, and for all these things I count them as rubbish, dung, in order that I may gain Christ. Listen. Here's how Paul was able to rejoice. He was able to rejoice because he took all of his success and his success did not give him his identity. His success was not what he really was. He says, all that I have gained, everything that I've ever accomplished in my life is really truly worthless. It's not worth more than dung, rubbish, trash. Because my understanding is God's is more valuable knowing jesus christ is more valuable than any of my successes now that's a profound statement and we we like that phrase and we like this thought and you're going okay great yes and we kind of champion paul and we were kind of amazed by this but let's just talk real candidly because most of our lives are more based on sorrow than it is success And I'm not saying I'm looking across and seeing unsuccessful people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to insult anybody. But let's be honest. Most of our lives, we have sorrow. We've been hurt. We've been abused. For some in this room, this might have been the best year of their lives. For others, for many others, this might have been one of the worst years of their lives. And here's what Paul is able to also say Not only is God more valuable than my successes, but go to chapter 1, and you're going to find Paul saying, God is more valuable than my sorrow. Look what he says in chapter 1. Paul is writing, he says, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Stop right there. Let me just help make sure we understand what's going on. 
The book of Philippians is actually a letter. It's a letter written to the Philippian church, the church at Philippi. And Paul is writing, this is considered one of the prison epistles. So what is going on is Paul has already lived the majority of his life, and at this point, he's actually under house arrest, or he's in prison. So one of the two. And while he's in prison, what's eventually going to happen is he's never going to be released from this prison cell. Okay, He's going to go from Caesarea by the sea, and he's going to end up going to Rome. And he's going to be on trial, and eventually he's going to lose his life. So he's never going to be getting out of jail at this point. Now follow along. Has he done anything majorly wrong, committed a major crime, such as killing somebody? No. Has, has, he, has he stolen large sums of money from the government? Okay, so for all intents and purposes, he's a actually decent citizen. He's a good citizen. And he's on trial for really very small, insignificant causes. And he's on trial. Now, um, when we were in Israel, I got a chance to go to Caesarea by the sea. Um, and where this is where Paul is actually um, held before he goes over to Rome. And so I wanted to show you some of these pictures just because I think it's, it, it was fascinating to be there. This is coming into the Colosseum right there by the Caesarea by the sea. And as you're coming into the Colosseum, it's, it's, it's amazing to see the statues, the Roman statues all around. And you're act, actually able to walk into the Colosseum. So go to the next slide. And in the next slide, you see this 3,500-seat auditorium. And it still stands. This is the actual place where Paul at some points would have come in. And when he makes his appeal and when he talks to uh, King Agrippa and he talks to some of the other kings, they actually bring him in and he's able to speak in this facility. And as he speaks to this facility, he's able to present the gospel, present his case a couple different times. And they actually sit around and mock him and laugh at him. And then you go to the next slide. The next slide is us coming down into the city. You see some of the, the columns and the, the ruins there um, off Right down the pathway right here on the far right side is actually you're going to be walking right near the prison cells. And so that's why I wanted to show you this picture. Um, to the far left, the columns out there at the end, that would have been one of the, um, the palaces for one of the Roman emperors right there. And so keep going to the next slide if you would. This is now from the, the prison cell. You would be looking out. You see the Mediterranean Sea, and you see the big sand. And the sand is actually a horse chariot races would be able to take places right there in that, in that area that have chariot races. So right outside of the prison, you would be able to see kind of what's going on. And then the next slide. The next slide, right to the, to the left right here at the bottom of the, the screen would actually be where um, they say that Paul would have made the appeal, says, fine, I want to, I make my appeal to Caesar, to go to Caesar, to make my presentation there. And so the next slide just shows you the sign right there. It says, I make my appeal to Caesar. Now, why do I show you this? Because what I want to set up for you is this, that what Paul is now going to say is this, that I'm going to rejoice, and I'm saying rejoice in the Lord. And this man, at this point in his life, he says, everything that's happened to me, the beatings, the shipwrecks, being persecuted, being, people lying about me, scandalous lies that have been told about him, everything that's happened. He's saying, I want you to understand something. Look what he says, verse 12. Has served to advance the gospel. Wait, time out. You mean being in prison has served to advance the gospel? There's not many of us who actually like to say that our trials and our sorrow has actually advanced the gospel. 
But in the midst of his trial, in the midst of where he was headed, Paul is able to say this, I want you to know, my dear friends, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that all the trials, all the sorrow in my life is actually serving to advance the gospel. Now watch. So that it may become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, my imprisonment is causing other Christians to become more bold about their faith. Verse 15. Some indeed do preach Christ with envy and rivalry. Some people are, are taking advantage of this opportunity while I'm in prison. They're, they're actually trying to compete with me and trying to put themselves higher than me to make themselves known as a, a better apostle, a better disciple than me. And in their preaching, they're trying to glorify themselves and, and they're competing against who I am. And he says, it's okay. It doesn't cause me problems for them to be putting me down because Christ is being preached. So here's what I want to talk about for just a second. We have to land here and we have to walk through this. Because sometimes in our success, yes, we can remember very quickly. Oh yes, of course, God gets the glory and we give him praise and and we stop there. But it's in our sorrow. So Paul says, I'm rejoicing. I'm rejoicing in my success. Success, yet still rejoicing. Sorrow, yet still rejoicing. I want to encourage those of us who've had a rough year, that the Lord is not asking us to be fake and to walk around as if we're just some happy-go-lucky people who have no cares in the world, who haven't actually walked through the valley. But in walking through the valley, one of the greatest witnesses that a lost and dying world needs to see is that in our sorrow, we still have a faith that is unshakable because we have a God who truly loves us and is walking with us. And in the midst of the sorrow, there can still be rejoicing. And Paul is saying, this, my friends, is happening. And while I'm in prison, I would rather be starting churches. I'd rather be out and about preaching to large and mass groups. I can't imagine having to be constrained to a cell, thinking that you have nothing left in life, you're saying, wait a minute, God, you called me to plant churches. Wait a minute, God, you called me to go all around, and yet you put me in a prison, and now for the last few years, God, here I am. I'm not able to fulfill what you're called me to do, but if God wouldn't have put him into prison, you and I wouldn't have the letters that we so treasure. And it has blessed us. Philippians is one of those books of the Bible that I've really, truly worn out because he walks through suffering so well. And my dear friends, I just want to encourage you. Sorrow, yet rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, just for fun, I'm going to add one that's not actually in the Bible. Stupidity and yet rejoicing. All right, let me just add this one in because I, this one, for sometimes, this, this is maybe we just need this extra one. So this is Heath adding it in. So just know this is not from the text, all right? This is just Heath adding it in, our stupidity. But I, I read this story, and when I read this story, sometimes people will pass on emails. You know how emails get passed on with all the funny stories. So this is one that was passed on to me, and I just felt like it was so stupid we had to share it. Here's what it said, all right? You ready? It's, uh, there's a story about a man and his fixation on crazy glue. So while visiting the Eagles Rock African Safari Zoo in St. Petersburg, Russia, 
a man named DeMuth tried to demonstrate one of America's many marvels. DeMuth wanted to show the effectiveness of crazy glue. Apparently, DeMuth put about three ounces of crazy glue in the palm of his hands and jokingly placed his hand on the buttocks of a passing baby rhino. The rhino was named Sally and had been a resident of the zoo for many years. She was not startled at first because she was used to being petted and touched. But since she was a baby, she decided at that time she got tired of it. And here's what it says. However, she tired of being petted. Sally began to panic because DeMuth would not remove his hand from her. During Sally's tirade, she began to run back and forth. And DeMuth could not get his hand off because his hand had been stuck to the rhino. Sally ran through Fences destroyed a shed, gored a barn, and a number of small animals began, uh, died due to the stampede. Three pygmy goats, one duck, were stomped to death. Sally was finally captured and restrained. But to complicate matters further, Sally had not been feeling well lately. Actually, she had been very constipated. And earlier that day, the veterinarian had just given her a laxative and some depressants to relax her bowels. James Douglas, the zoo caretaker, said this, With all the excitement, the laxatives began to take effect, and DeMuth was repeatedly showered with rhino diarrhea. <laughs> I guess you could say that DeMuth was up to his neck. He continues, Once Sally was under control, we were able to tranquilize her, and three caretakers, with the help of shovels, were able to keep an air passage open for DeMuth. It took a team of medics and zoo caretakers over four hours to apply solvent and remove DeMuth's hand from the rhino's buttocks. It was a tricky operation, he said. We had to work and shield our faces from being pelted with rhino dung. I don't think Mr. DeMuth will be playing with crazy glue for a while, he finished. All right, rejoicing. Successful, yet rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. Stupidity. Yet rejoicing. Now watch what Paul says. He says rejoice always. Now watch how he plays this out. And we'll walk through this very quickly. Paul continues and he says over in chapter 4. He says rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And then he says let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness. What is that? Paul begins to talk about contentment. And he begins to lay the groundwork for contentment. What is contentment? We need to rejoice Because contentment is not determined by our possessions. Paul lays out for us the idea of what it means to be content. He walks down through, go down to verse 10. And Paul says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at any length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but listen, he said, don't worry about it. He says, because what's happened to me, he said, I know in verse 12, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to be abound in every, any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. Contentment. We, we live in a day and age where we're programmed, and especially the younger generations, we're programmed to not be content. Every commercial is about what? Showing us why we're not content with the car that we drive, the house that we have, the clothes that we wear. They've already started... Christmas buying and sales. Why? Because we can't quite get enough things, right? 
Black Friday sales, we're actually doing Thursday sales now. And we keep expanding and extending. Contentment. One of the reasons Paul was able to rejoice in the Lord is because he understood what it meant to be content. In good, in plenty, bad times, with a lot of great things, he was able to be content. Benjamin Franklin, you remember in his Poor Richard's Almanac, he actually writes this saying, he says, Who is rich? He that is content. Who is that? Nobody. Obviously, he had never really met the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul said, it's okay. And then he gives us that famous quote in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through who? Through Christ who strengthens me. I can face whatever the challenge is, and I can still rejoice whether I have a lot or whether I have little, because I've learned how to be content. Oh, that God would help us learn to be content with what we have, instead of always looking for the next thing. Always wanting that next thing. One of the reasons we're not able to rejoice is because we're looking around and saying, but God, if you would do that for me, I would be happy. God, if you would give me that, I would be happy. Don't you see that in your grandkids? Always wanting that next thing. So already we had to start talking about Christmas, right? Um, Because what happens for us for Thanksgiving is that we go up to Dumas and we see my family, but we also celebrate Christmas because we don't get to go back up for Christmas, we usually go over to my wife's family's for Christmas. And so, uh, so what usually happens is we celebrate Thanksgiving, and then on Friday we'll end up celebrating Christmas. And so my kids are already having to make their list for Christmas. And oh my goodness. So I've got, I got the range now, right? I've got the, the elementary kids, and then now I have this, oh my goodness, a freshman in high school. It's hard to even say that. All right, so here's what she's wanting to do. She's wanting to go look at rings. She's wanting to look at jewelry. And all, all of the things that she wants, it's, it's like breaking the bank, right? You're like, you wish you, wish you could go back to those early elementary where, you, hey, if you gave them a bag full of candy, you, you're, you jackpot. You won. So we're, we're walking through the list. And isn't it interesting that I, I look and I laugh and, we, we talk about it, and we look at the toys they have or the things they have in their closet or in their room. And we have Legos. My son and my daughter, my youngest daughter, they like to build things with Legos. And after they build it, then they set it up on the shelf, and they're able to look at it. And then guess what they asked for for Christmas for my mom and daddy? More Legos. Because they don't have that one yet. They, don't, they can't make that castle. They can't make this. And it's more. Now, there's nothing wrong with having things, and I am so thankful for the ability to be able to give gifts. But contentment. Contentment. To be able to be able to say with Paul, I can rejoice, and here's how I'm able to rejoice. Because I've learned that contentment is not based on things. Look what else Paul says. He continues on. He says, okay, I want you to know that you can rejoice, and here's why you can rejoice. Because the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why can we rejoice? Because powerful, life-changing prayer is possible for each of us. Paul encourages us, and he wants us to understand that God is near, and because God is near, you actually have access to your Heavenly Father through prayer. Now, have you picked up a theme yet? Last week we talked about Thanksgiving, 
And as we talked about Thanksgiving, we were told that the will of God is that we rejoice, that we pray, and that we're always thankful. Do you see the same things being repeated again this time? Why is he tying prayer and thanksgiving? Why is he tying thanksgiving and rejoicing? Because it all works together. If you're not being content, if you're not rejoicing in what God is doing, there's no way you can be able to be thankful. But when you begin to be thankful, when you begin to consistently pray, when you come back to prayer over and over again, what happens is this, is it causes you to be able to rejoice because you actually sense and feel the presence of God. It says the Lord is at hand. Prayer is possible for you. Life-changing prayer. And look what he says about prayer. In everything, prayer, supplication, you find yourself being anxious. The greatest remedy is getting in the presence of God. Prayer and walking with Him, staying with Him. I love the fact that he says, I'm supposed to actually make my request known. Have you ever felt like your request was really too insignificant to tell God? It was too insignificant really to just bring it before God. And so instead of giving it to God, what you simply do is we just hang on to it and we hold it just a little bit longer. And we keep hanging on to it and it begins to eat away at us and we become anxious, we become worried, we become stressed. And he says, I want you to be persistent. I want you to be persistent in coming to me. I want you to be not only persistent, I also want you to learn patience. I want you to be patiently persistent in coming to me, and I want you to come to me over and over again. I want you to sup with me. Do you see that word supplication? I want you to sit with me. I want you to enjoy my conversation. I want you to enjoy my company is what God is saying. And Paul's saying, the reason I'm able to rejoice is because I've learned what it means to actually be in prayer where God hears me. Where I'm able to give my request to him. Where I'm able to learn what it means to give thanks. Where it's, God, thank you. Thank you for allowing this to come into my life. Thank you for allowing and giving me this. Thank you for not allowing me to have that. And he walks back through and he gives thanks. It reminds me of a story of a a lady who she woke up in the middle of the night. And she heard a burglar in her house, a thief. So she begins to pray, and she says, Lord, help me. And as she's getting to, ready to walk around the corner, she, she, she's saying, I, I, she's trying to figure out what to say. And so she's wondering, is he still there? Is he about to leave? And so as she turns the corner, she, says he, she sees him, and she startles herself, and immediately she just says whatever comes to her mind, and she says, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. Immediately, the, the thief paused. He never turned around. She called. And as she called, the, the police were able to get there quickly. They arrest the man, and they ask him as he's in the car as they're driving back to the station, Sir, you had the chance to run. You could have outran her. Why did you stay? And he said this, Well, you would have stayed too if you would have known that woman was packing an axe and two thirty-eight revolvers. <laughs> you never know what prayer is going to do for you. It changes you, it changes your circumstances, and life-changing prayer is available. And I, 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 We keep coming back to this because we know it, but here's the stat with families today. You ready? The average family, the only time they pray will be at meals together, and most of them don't even do that. 
over 80% of Christian homes never pray together. Now, that's a big problem. And you're going, why aren't we praying more? Well, we need to pray more. If we want to have rejoicing, we want to be thankful, prayer is going to have to be a reality in our lives. The last thing that Paul does is this. He gives us an incredible promise. Why should I rejoice? He says, when you rejoice, when you are content, when you're bringing things in prayer, he says, verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? That is a promise. That is a promise that you will have. The peace of God. When you're rejoicing, when you're interacting, when you're content with what God is having and you're saying thanks and you're bringing your prayer request to God, and you're not stressing, you're not worrying. He said, the peace of God is going to overshadow you. And here's, here's the flip side. If I am stressed, if I'm not content with what I have, with I'm always trying to get that next big thing, if I'm going after the next success, if I can't figure out how to rejoice even when things are going tough, then inside my soul, the peace of God will not be present. But he says, the peace of God will actually guard your hearts. And in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of the great success, whatever it is that's going on in your life, when you're learning to rejoice, people will look around and say, wait a minute, I don't understand how you're able to have that kind of confidence in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your sorrow. And you're saying, I don't understand it either, but it's God. It's God giving me the peace. It's God that gives a peace that surpasses all understanding. There was an elderly lady, uh, her husband passed away. And on her, the tomb, she says, rest in peace. Then she found out he left her out of the will. And she went back and she said, until I come again. Jesus is actually giving you a promise. Right here, Paul is saying peace is made available to you and I. Not just when he comes again, but as you're in the land of the living now. And the only way you have it is by truly being in his presence. Do you see the last part of this is peace is from God's presence? You can rejoice when God is present in your life. You will have peace. There's that old saying that says, Know God, K-N-O-W. Know God, you K-N-O-W. You know peace. And then it flips it just a little bit, and it takes off a couple letters, and it says, no, N-O. Know God, no, N-O, peace. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, can I just challenge you and encourage you that the God of the universe has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for your sins. You do not have to live separated from him anymore. You don't have to keep running from him. He's welcoming you back and he says, I want you to come in. And he offers you salvation. All you simply have to do is give your life to him and ask him to forgive you. To say you're sorry. To ask Jesus to be the Lord of your, your life. If you would do that today, Jesus says, I will, he, I, whoever comes shall be saved. You confess Lord, you shall be saved. What an incredible promise. If you have confessed Jesus as your personal Savior, my dear friends, we have much to rejoice about. We have a God who doesn't leave us. 
We have a God who is worthy of our praise. He offers and allows us to be able to be content no matter what's going on in our life because He is enough. He gives us access to Him through prayer. He is an amazing God. And He offers you peace. I pray that today you're living in that peace because He's made it available to each one of us. Let's rejoice in Him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for Your love, Your goodness, and Your grace. God, I do pray that Your peace that passes all understanding would guard our hearts. Heavenly Father, for, for many of us, maybe we're struggling through and we can't rejoice. The events of our lives have, have, have become so sorrowful and so painful that, God, it's, it's hard to even rejoice. God, I pray that you would help us as the Apostle Paul to be able to be sorrowful yet still rejoice because we're rejoicing in Jesus. Dear Lord, I pray today that you would help us to remember to talk to you, to interact with you in prayer. Father, if there's someone who doesn't know you as their personal Savior, I pray today they would trust Jesus and give their life to you in Jesus' name. 